This is Gil Manser welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on KRCB-FM, where tonight's guests are Word by Word's first host, Jordan Rosenfeld, and her co-author of Write Free, Attracting the Creative Life, Rebecca Lawton. Both writers are now novelists as well. Jordan's novel of psychological suspense, Forged in Grace, will be released the end of this month, and Rebecca's river rafting novel, Junction, Utah, just came out. Jordan E. Rosenfeld is a writing coach editor, freelance journalist, and fiction writer. She holds a BA from the Hutchins School and an MFA in fiction and literature from the Bennington Writing Seminars. In addition to Write Free with Becca Lawton, she is also the author of Make a Scene, Crafting a Powerful Story One Scene at a Time, editor of Zebulon Nights, an anthology of live wire readers, and co-editor of Milk and Ink, an anthology of motherhood. Jordan's book reviews are regularly featured on the California Report, a news magazine produced by NPR affiliate KQED Radio. Loyal listeners will recall that Jordan was Word by Word's original host, where she interviewed authors such as T.C. Boyle, Amy Bender, Louise Erdrich, and Mary Gateskill. With a B.S. in Earth Sciences from UC Santa Cruz and an MFA in Creative Writing from Mills College, Rebecca Conrad Lawton is an author and natural scientist whose writing explores nature, human, and otherwise. She has earned three Pushcart Prize nominations in fiction, poetry, and nonfiction. Her memoir, Reading Water, Lessons from the River, was a San Francisco Chronicle Bay Area bestseller and a Forward Nature Book of the Year finalist. She is co-author of three additional books on creativity in the outdoors. Becca's books have been shaped by her work as a professional river guide in Arizona, California, Idaho, Utah, and Oregon for many seasons, including 10 years in the Grand Canyon. Currently, she serves on the Board of Directors for Friends of the River. Jordan and Becca, I want to offer you a gracious welcome to KRCB and Word by Word. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Jordan, you felt that you wrote to me that you might feel a little bit nostalgic returning to these double-wide trailers that you know with the KRCB logo on them. So how does it feel to be back? I do feel nostalgic. I'm, I'm one of these people who hates to be missing out on anything, and so there's always a part of me that I was reluctant to leave the show. Right. And... Uh, Every time I see you advertising the next one, I think, "Oh, I miss it." You know, so but that's okay. Nostalgia's okay. I'm, sure. I was also saying how I have a four and a half year old son now, so even if I wanted to be doing such a thing now, there's very little chance I'd have the time. It takes time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it was it was a wonderful. I think the opportunity just to meet with with authors that I admired and and get to talk about the process and the craft was was inspiring. I mm-hmm. loved it, mm-hmm. and I know you're a writer too. So right. So do you recall how this all started? When did this start? How many years ago was that? I, I was just trying to remember. I believe it was about 2000, but I honestly don't – I'd have to look. Yeah. Um, I had recently moved to Petaluma from Santa Rosa and was hoping for to create some literary community or join some. And mm-hmm. um, I had the good fortune of, of meeting the owners of a little jazz lounge that opened pe- in Petaluma called Zebulon's Lounge. And they were looking for something like a literary reading series and – I had a lot of energy and ambition in those days. and uh, Before children. Yeah. It's BC. ridiculous. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Before child. Yes. And so um, I, through the miracle of email, because there was no Facebook or Twitter at the time, amazingly, oh, so many years ago. Oh, y- you know, long yonder. It's like, what are we talking? <laughs> I can't even count. Anyways, um, very quickly people started showing up and emailing and being interested. And, and I believe someone just introduced me to Robin Pressman, the director right, here. Right. And um, she liked the idea of doing the kind of a, a radio equivalent of what we were doing 
in the readings mm-hmm. and we we started talking and thinking and brainstorming and um, we thought we could pull in a lot of the local talent and right. so right yeah so that's how it, it started and then we realized that you know a lot of big name authors would come through Marin in San Francisco and mm-hmm. that they really didn't know you know didn't think it was a big deal to drive all the way up you know to Sonoma County so we started getting all kinds of people to come here. So. It's only an hour away from yeah. It's, it's you know, some wine of country, and it's and it is wine country, which draws people. I, yeah, I agree. And um, great places to eat too. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, I'll never forget the the time I came out and there was T.C. Boyle sitting in his red Converse with his crazy <laughs> David Lynch hair, and uh, and I was he's like, a distinctive figure. Yeah, and I thought he doesn't. Uh, wow. Well, you must have been uh, very welcoming because he loves to come back. He he calls this his home, and then he knows where to to get lunch around here and comes in with you. I'm glad. I think he's just a generous, generous with his time kind of writer. Right, right, right. (laughs) Which is no, I don't. I'm. I hear that it's not always the case. Yeah, we're we're very fortunate. So you did good work. Thank you for that. (laughs) Becca, your background, tell us a little bit about what you've done. And I know 10 years in the Grand Canyon sounds amazing. And what does it mean to be a professional river guide? Being a professional river guide means you get to take people from all over the world down some of the most beautiful rivers in the country. Mm -hmm. If you're a Western States river guide like I was. Right. And, yeah, those years in Grand Canyon were – it felt like I was – home when I was in Grand Canyon mm-hmm. with family. My co- colleagues and co-workers felt like family. Right. And I was sort of on the leading edge of women doing it. So it was quite an exploration into self and relationship as an employee mm-hmm. in a male-dominated workplace, really. So was this whitewater rafting or canoes or uh, just, you know, leisurely going down and seeing the beautiful formations or all the above? I think it's all of the above without the canoes. It was pretty much exclusively river rafts, the rubber ones, or neoprene, (laughs) (laughs) a wonderful fabric. And it was more about reaching out to people than anything else, showing them the places we loved or had come to love through our work. And it was an amazing experience and hard to leave once you get started. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to have you read a little bit from one of your books, and I think it will give everybody a feel of what it's like to be on one of those rafts with a specific family, the one of whom, the mother, does not swim. That's correct. So you remember that section. Yes. Yeah, that's the part I'm going to have you read. Thank you. So let's turn to what you wrote on your blog about coming together to make your new novel. You were up in a cabin, a kind of retreat, writer's retreat, is that correct? Yeah. And um, we're stoking the fire, and then what happens? Well, the funny thing about the fact that I was stoking the fire is that I have not uh, much skill in fire making. So I had successfully not only stoked and created a fire, but kept it going right. most of the night. So I was feeling flush with my success. Um, I don't, I was watching the embers kind of burn and crackle and, and the way a lot of my fiction comes to me, there was just sort of a voice started narrating in my head. Um, and it was the character named Marley, who's sort of the co-protagonist of this novel. And mm-hmm. she was, it, it was the young version of her as a teenager, sort of talking in this bold and taunting voice. The 15-year-old? 
Yeah, when I first – the very first original version of the book, they were 13. But, mm-hmm. yeah, eventually I changed it to 15. So, yeah. So it, it was um, – that's the muse – I don't know. She spoke through fire in this one. And I am – I haven't explored it very deeply in myself, but I'm fascinated by by fire. <laughs> it's like, you, you know, no uh, fire setting. But I, I could watch a, a roaring fire for hours like it was mm-hmm. a movie. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's meditative. Right. Know, something. There's something about something so beautiful and so dangerous, you know, both. So she introduced you to Grace. She did. She was the gateway to Grace, who's the protagonist of my mm-hmm. book. Um, Tell me where Grace comes from. <laughs> Is she a composite of people you know or part of yourself, or do you know that? I think that any character is a composite of both parts of yourself and and maybe more like impressions of people in, in the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people ask me whether or not I'm more like Grace or more like Marley, and um, I don't identify with either actually very well. Mm-hmm. The only aspect of Grace that I think is like myself, the part of her that's me, is um, she has this what I what I've become come to call like extreme empathy, meaning. It borders on maybe for lack of a, a less psychobabble term, uh, codependency. So she has this – she feels very, very deeply for people's pain and it becomes metaphorically translated in the novel, of course, because yeah, she – Yeah, but codependent has in my mind a negative connotation. Well, it does. I mean yeah. I think she at her own expense and in myself that I have at times – I have a hard time with that line between am I taking – how much care do I need to take of myself and how much care do I t- need to take of another person? Right, so. right. So maybe that's the the only way I can really think of that graces me. I'd say that there are some imp- impressions and opinions she has that I share. But, yeah, I don't honestly know entirely where they come from. Becca, you've met these two characters. Have I you have. known them for some time now? I have. I have. I could not put Jordan's book down when I got to read an early version of it. Uh-huh. And the interaction of the two, is it's fascinating. It, it feels like two parts of oneself – the shadow side, mm-hmm. and it just occurred to me too that you're writing about fire, and I'm writing about water, and here we are. That's a really good point. Just as those two characters play off each other, it mm-hmm. feels like our work plays off each mm-hmm. other. Wait till you hear my break. <laughs> <laughs> I've already gotten to the fire and water thing. Awesome. Um, what I'm going to have you do is read a little bit, so people understand the flavor of the two characters that get to meet them here, and and as the setup for this. It's the day of a funeral. So tell us a little bit about Marley's grandmother. Um, so Marley was kind of this wild child, and she often spent time, was sort of sent to sent to live with her grandmother or mm-hmm. stay with her, really. In a little and, town somewhere um, called Yeah, it's, a, it's called Drake's Bay. Bay. But it looks an awful lot like some other towns that we yeah, know. Yeah, I'd be curious yeah. which one you think yeah. it is. Well, it's like, um, I see two there. Okay. So. Yeah, it's a Northern California sort of semi-coastal town. Right. Um, so in her, Inverness and Point Reyes come down. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. It's actually further away, but that's fine. Okay. I, <laughs> I'm fine with that. It's really none of them, so it doesn't matter. Okay. Yes, perfect. Sure. And her grandmother's sort of um, one of these I think of as a – not necessarily a typical Marinite, but someone of that ilk who um, – she's sort of an artistic self and really outspoken and – West um, Marin. Yeah. Let's yeah. her lets her granddaughter get away with a lot and is at odds with – uh, her own daughter, the mother of the granddaughter, Marley's mother. So she's kind of a, a bold spirit, the grandmother. And mm-hmm. so the, 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 they have a synergy together that that works. But, of course, she's already dead at the beginning of the book. 
Well, but we get to know her. In fact, I'm going to yeah. have, can you want to read that part? This one? So, uh, yeah, it's called the photo album. I yeah. called it that. How much of this am I to read the whole you, thing? If you'd like the whole thing, go on as long as you Whatever want. Whatever works for you. Okay. Yeah, that's right. If you get tired. And this is narrated, the whole novel's narrated through Grace's point of view. It's right. first person, so. Um, Marley's grandmother was a woman who spoke in hyperbole and hugged tightly. She gave us sips of champagne, made us ice cream sundaes, and let us sleep under the stars. Come on, I want to show you something I found yesterday. I hobble after Marley, back downstairs and inside her grandmother's bedroom, which she's mostly packed up. All the perfume bottles of my memory are gone. The curtains pull down to show layers of dirt on the window, and the closet is emptied. From an open box, she pulls out a thick, dark green album and lays it on the bed. When she opens it, old, grainy photos with rounded edges spill out, the kind of miscellaneous family photos my mother no longer leaves in plain sight. I often wonder if Ma keeps them under her bed and pulls them out to remember her little angel. Aha! Marley plunks her manicured finger down on a page. There we are, two spun-sugar darlings, our skin fresh and glowing, our cheeks flush with summer sun. At age seven, in yellow bathing suits, dipping our feet into a kiddie pool with looks of surprise on our faces, as if the water must have been icy. My face is a lightly freckled peach palette, my eyes a lovely lucid green. Then another, Marley and me holding giant wheel-like lollipops with Mickey Mouse ears at Disneyland, her gram took us. Marley and me vamping for the camera, circa 1990. Wearing red lipstick, high heels, and mini dresses, mouths open in croons to Madonna. Oh, I just love this one, look. Marley peels away the plastic coating and lifts a photograph of our faces pressed cheek to cheek. Our eyes are closed, mouths cracked in grins that reveal matching gaps where teeth had fallen out. It's been years since I've looked at photographs of myself before the fire. I've grown accustomed to the rough landscape of my skin, the gradient colors of my patchwork self. The beauty of that other me is so real, I feel it like a thumb gouge to the diaphragm. My chest is tight, as though once again stuffed into the pressure garments I wore for years, air catching in squeezed lungs. I push myself away, maneuvering off the bed, and bang my shin against the frame. Marley calls after me, but I scurry out the door, away from the image of that younger self. That's fine. Three or four things I want to ask you about in here. One is the way you have handled how the main character has gotten burned because you see there's sort of references here the pressure garments mm -hmm. the you know the scars on her skin but it's not you know it's not said there um and and you titillate the reader mm -hmm. you don't come and say well this is what happened we get little glimpses we we see images of candles we see the oak tree in the backyard mm -hmm. that's been scarred and they go at with a big axe we see uh, flashbacks of all kinds of events leading up to this beach parties and boys, you know, groping and all the right. rest of that of adolescence. The fact that uh, Marley is, as you say, a free spirit, the the wild one of the two, and mm -hmm. her friend goes along, um, and you know, it gets completely involved in the experience, but ends up with some of the uh, the horrible uh, actions that happen as a result. But the other thing is what you the way you've done this paragraph here. There we are, two spun sugar darlings, our skin fresh and glowing, our cheeks flushed with summer sun, at age seven in yellow bathing suits, dipping our feet into a kiddie pool. Tell me where two spun sugar darlings came from. 
<laughs> Honestly, I I think it was like in trying to capture that innocence and you know joy of childhood mm-hmm. that images that's how I think I tend to think in images and sometimes I'm lucky enough for that image to have an actual verbal application mm-hmm. a lot of times they just fail and clunk and I and I struggle and you know readers will tell me like that one's too much um that was one of those ones that it just it came off the fingers and it felt right and it right. See, it it's captured not too something. precious I, at least I hope not but no, it, it you know it felt like um it reminded me of being like at this the the county fair or something, something about children and sweetness and, you know, and there's also something about spun sugar is so, so fleeting and so fragile, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. that it, you only have it for a short period of time. So pink and fresh. Pink and fresh. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't take a lot of credit for those <laughs> lines. They're, they just to come as you, <laughs> they're the ones fingers... where you go, I don't know who, who I'm gentling right now, but thank right. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. You see in images and, uh, you know, we were talking about TC Boyle and he, he confesses that he sees in characters and, and dialogue. Mm. Um, I guess, you know, every writer has a different way of approaching. So when you are doing your work, when you're doing – and this is a long work. A novel is a significantly different. We'll mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit later. Then, you know, doing short stories or such, do you have images that you paste around or you just keep them in mm-hmm. your head? Or It's all internal. All internal. Occasionally. So when you're driving, do you miss the exit because mm-hmm. you're, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, for a while I would do that, like trying to write and drive thing. And then <laughs> now there's all this digital recording technology. Right. Although I really don't. I try to sort of save it up and, and not, either when I sit down to write, it's there ready to come out or I have to go do some more driving and thinking and walking. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Becca, your writing style, this is a good time to tap into that. Because you did a novel, which is you know you were getting awarded for all kinds of different things, and it's a it's a quality different kettle of fish than nonfiction. Because I've done a lot of nonfiction and novel, took a lot more work. It definitely is a lot of work, a yeah. lot more work than I thought going in. As Mark Twain says, I don't think I would have started if I'd known. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think in images, words, visions, thoughts, smells? What what prompts you? I find that I dream a lot of it. Ah. A lot of this was first in my dreams and my dream journals before it coalesced as a story. And because it took many years to come together, there was a lot of dreaming and a lot of finding my way through the material Mm -hmm. and living with the characters for a long time. I've, I've known most of these characters longer than I've known my own daughter, who's 20 three now. So it wasn't unusual for me to just have an image of two of the characters standing in a parking lot, say, having a conversation. And I'd write that down. And later, I'd find that it worked into the Mm storyline. So that's part of my process. And your protagonist is a female uh, professional river guide. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. And the other characters in the book, are they, again, these composites of people you knew and families you traveled with and adventures that actually happened? Definitely. And then, of course, the uh, the ecological theme that mm-hmm. appears. Mm-hmm. Is that what you saw over the years you were there, the changes that were going on? The what, I can't remember what the word you was, but the, basically a... Uh, a pathway to a you know some mineral resource, but you know leading to the river that even though it was on 
public land that was still right. cordoned off? The energy corridors. Yes. Yes, the energy corridors are public lands that are set aside to be used for developing oil resources. Right. And it's true. I read about those in some environmental impact reports as I was studying the area using the Ellen Malloy Fund research funding that I Mm -hmm. received for this project. And I had been out there in the 70s, and there was an early oil boom at that time. And it didn't last but I thought, oh, it's only a matter of time till this comes back. Yes. And now it's back with a, a vengeance and these energy corridors where uh, development can go into our public lands that are set aside as national parks or wilderness areas. That's, that is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And they basically can do whatever. They don't need special permission because it's already been exempted or whatever the word is for that That's type of use. true. And what I – was told when I was out there talking to people who were living with this, mm-hmm. they were saying it was coming right from the executive branch of our government at that time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much of this is factual, but enough people said it that I worked it into the story. So let's put the time plates on that. Which president are we talking about here? This would be the second of the George Bushes. Okay. Yes. The energy president. Yes, yeah. and his team, right. shall we say. The vice president who had meetings, we never know who was there kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, right. That was a name I heard thrown around quite a bit out there. Mm-hmm. And it's a very conservative area. Yes. These, these aren't Northern California liberals. These are people who are living, trying to make a living, you know, farming alfalfa or raising horses. And they're throwing the names around with the same sort of viciousness, viciousness that I hear that we do sometimes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you, we've heard from your book. Do you want to go on a river rafting trip a little bit here? I would love to. Okay. And this is the the main character's name is? Madeline Cruz. Madeline Cruz. Thing. I couldn't remember her last name. Right. I was rowing a family of four, the Carlsons, father, mother, and two teenage sons. Generally, they were playful together, like a family of coyotes I once saw rolling and wrestling on a river beach. The Carlsons had grown quiet, though, any time we hit whitewater. Now, positioned in their usual spots on the raft, they sat in full rain gear, watching me with big eyes. I reviewed safety with them. Hold the D-rings tight. They gripped the metal rings at the rim of the raft. Right, and don't fall out. I demonstrated what to do if they bounced from the boat, windmilling my arms in a huge, circling backstroke. The boys, Tripp and Brooke, copied me. Yeah, I said. Any questions? Um, Madeline, the father Jeff raised one hand. You know Melinda can't swim, don't you? I about whiplashed my neck to look at his wife, (laughs) a tall, willowy lawyer. She confided that she'd never liked water, but that was all. Now she gripped the D-ring so hard her knuckles squeezed white. Her usual self-assured smile had vanished. It's true, said Jeff. He pushed his slipping glasses higher up his nose, then cinched up the strap that held them. We made a special note on your company's intake form. Damn. I'd heard of those forms but had never seen one. (laughs) And here was Melinda, pale and full of fear. I swallowed. Stick with the boat like glue. The Carlsons looked at each other, their mouths set in four versions of the same thin line. 
As I tightened my life jacket, the family did too. With Tripp and Brooke in the bow and the parents tucked in behind, all four sat braced and clenching their handholds. Rick pushed his boatload from shore. I followed, leaving a strategic amount of space between us. Midstream, he lined up for the run. From upstream, I saw Cookie hunkered in the very nose of his raft, in front of his passengers. They all faced the waves ahead. Everything seemed in order until Cookie grabbed the bow line and stood up. Rick, it appeared, was urging Cookie up to his front tube, coaching her, it seemed, in the art of becoming a human bowsprit. Meanwhile, he neglected his entrance. He was heading left, lining up for crashing, thrashing, whole territory. His raft lingered at the very lip of the rapids, caught in the pause before the fall. That moment is a hummingbird moment, a wordless hovering, a short break before plunging down. In that tiny slice of time, Rick seemed to realize he was off the mark. He pulled hard to angle right, throwing Cookie off balance. She fell from the bow, legs splayed in the air. Rick's raft dropped out of sight. An instant later, it swept up the first wave, his people still in their textbook-perfect locations in the bow. He braced on his rowing seat, working the oars. Even so, his boat slowed precariously, losing momentum as it inched to the foaming wave crest. He managed with effort to top the mound of water. Then the boat sank out of sight again, this time into the trough of the next wave. A moment later, he reemerged. His passengers were in disarray, fallen in a jumble to the floor of the raft, everyone but Rick. He maintained his seat, pushing the boat up the second wave, barely inching to the watery summit. They're over, shouted Jeff. Damn, Rick must have flipped. I snuck a peep at Melinda, figuring she'd be out of her mind with fear. Instead, she remained still and steady between her handholds. I aimed good thoughts directly at the back of her head and stayed the course. We dropped into the trough, preceding the second wave. My stomach sunk in the swift fall. I focused on the rough water just off our bow as the suction pulled us forward. The second wave loomed ahead, huge and breaking into foam at the top. It was the water that had capsized Rick. With a rush, we hit it like crashing into a wet wall and slowed. Always a danger, that loss of energy. Feeling us stall, I stood and forced the oars forward with my full body weight. It was like trying to push a semi with its brake on, but I kept leaning as the river held us. Then, in an instant, I felt something give. The water let us go. We rose from shadow into light. When I snuck another look at Melinda, something had changed. She smiled back at me, a real smile, not a fearful baring of teeth. Perfect. Thank you. Well, we're right there with you in that raft and watching the rafts around you. And that happens over and over and over and over and over again over the years that you did that. Whitewater rapid after whitewater rapid, warm springs hole after hole. And you must have had some terrific adventures and people lost and mm-hmm. injuries. and mm-hmm. yeah, It's true. I talk about that a lot in Reading Water, the book I read or wrote th- 10 years ago. And actually, that's how I met you, Jordan, right in this room, reading from Reading Water. Aha! <laughs> Well, see, what a, what a synergistic right. you know, activity we're involved right. in here, we are, yes. Really. This is Gil Manser welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on KRCB-FM, where tonight's guests are Word by Word's first host, Jordan Rosenfeld, and her co-author, 
of Write Free, Attracting the Creative Life, Rebecca Lawton. Both writers are now novelists as well. Jordan's novel of psychological suspense, Forged in Grace, will be released at the end of this month, and Rebecca's river rafting novel, Junction, Utah, just came out. In the first half of the show, Jordan told us that the idea of Forged in Grace began when Marley, the wild beauty in the novel, began whispering to Jordan as she was stoking a fire in a little cabin, while Becca's novel was shaped by her years as a professional river guide. And she has just read a section from Junction, Utah, with a family of four and a river guide. So stay tuned to Word by Word as the fire and water continue to mix it up. Becca, you were telling us about the adventure of rafting down the Grand Canyon. So especially when you work in the Grand Canyon, there's Warm Springs Hole after Warm Spring Hole all day long, mm-hmm. every day. Well, not every day. There are some breaks. But one has to learn to live with adrenaline and, in fact, become friendly with it. And at one point in my career, I had worn out my adrenal gland <laughs> and had to have it repumped up because <laughs> I was kind of worn out. And I yeah. wasn't getting any more fear at the top of rapids, not even a healthy fear. Really? And one needs a, a shade you of it. You became jaded, they I say. Did. Yes. Wow. I did. I wouldn't have wanted to ride with me during that phase. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, it worked out fine. Yeah. Never lost anyone, not even when I flipped the boat with my husband and daughter in the boat in the biggest rapid in Grand Canyon. Mm. Now, you were there long enough that you saw the different heights of river and the amount of flow that was released and the big, you know, uh, debate that we all read about National Geographic about, you know, whether the dam should be breached, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So uh, do you have some thoughts about that you want to share with our listeners? I do. I was there in 82 and 83 when the dam was actually this is Glen Canyon Dam right. above the river run through Grand Canyon. And the dam was threatened with the water being too high and mm-hmm. coming up over the dam. They even put splashboards in the dam to raise the level so it could hold more water. And the dam was vibrating and it was being undermined in the bypass tunnels mm-hmm. so that big chunks of concrete were coming through. And we were pretty fearful downstream. Um, we thought we might end up in Baja, you know, on a big wave. It, or salt it, and sea. Yes. <laughs> it never happened. And But we did go to bed every night with a sort of a resigned attitude that we could be riding the big one. And in terms of water resources and dams in general, I think the way that the agencies and the the boaters have come together in Grand Canyon is a, is a model for the rest of the country to – manage the resources in ways that take everyone's needs into account. Mm -hmm. Very good. So, Jordan, back to your book, Forged in in Grace. Um, It's really set in two times. We go back and forth throughout the book um, and two places. Well, in a lot of ways, I felt like Grace's life stopped with the accident. Mm -hmm. And she's basically living an adult version of a not a teenager's life in that she's having any fun, but she lives with her mother in a very small town. She goes to work and comes home. There's not, there's not much happening for her, and it, and it's her own choice. She's she let the accident sort of, you know, she let it stop everything because she's for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I kept thinking to myself, I want her Let's to go back on oh. that just a little bit. Say that again. She let it happen to her. You don't think there's any proactive. Well, decisions going on. I there? do, but she 
never felt brave enough to venture out on her own. Because she didn't have her brave side with her. Right. Right. And so Marley comes back to town, and, and the, she finds out there have been a lot of mistruths also about what her mother's been telling her. Right. And so... Mother's a piece of work. Yeah, she is. She... um. She sort of she sort of realizes that she's been living her life based on a series of mistruths, lies, mm-hmm. in some part, and in part her own fear. And so Marley, of course, gives her courage. But what I wanted was for her to go to a place where she could have a variety of unusual experiences, because she's really had no life since she was fifteen. And I didn't. I thought I was also thinking of New York, which I actually have a lot, have a lot more personal experience with, which might have been a wise choice. But um, I I like the. I'm trying to think of the word for it, what Vegas represents to me, the storybook, hallucinatory, anything goes quality of, of Las Vegas. Yeah, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. And, and also it felt true to the kind of place that Marley would have gone off to and felt comfortable in. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just trying – I didn't write it with the intention of like, I'm gee, where should she end up? I mean that was just the choice that came to my mind. But when I analyzed why, it felt like a – yeah, a place it's where It's a 24-hour place. Yeah, there's no yeah. – you know, stopping the possibilities. And the the first draft of the book, there was a lot more kind of craziness, I think, in some ways. But I think for the sake of trying to um trying to really explore the the deep intricacies of the relationship between the girls and their and the women mm-hmm. that they become was was more important than some of the flashier plot stuff I had going on in the first draft, right. which is one of my right. tendencies to uh curb. Now, Marley confides in her friend some secrets. Do you want to share those with our listeners? How much do you want to give away? I don't know. I feel like the secrets are kind of what the book is built yeah, on. Yeah, okay, so we won't. But anyway, she has some secrets, she some things some going secrets. on in her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. There is, um, I want to I read a little bit about what she does for her job yeah. and the place she works. So that's the part called the mermaid tank. And um, I'm going to have to ask you afterwards if this is a real place or not. So we'll get into that. But essentially... Marley takes her to her place of work and uh, shows her what the women do there. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to read Please that? Please do. Okay. Of course I know that the women swimming in serene circles in the blue-tinted water of the mermaid grotto are not magical, but even so I'm spellbound. They're scantily clad in shiny, shell-shaped pasties and eerily realistic fishtails that move effortlessly through the water. They hold their breath for a stupendously long time, as they swirl and swoop, blow kisses, and press their gleaming cleavage to the tank's glass. They look real. They look capable of dragging a man underwater and enchanting him. Is it hard to do? I press my face to the tank. A short man cranes behind me on tiptoe to get a better look, but I'm not moving. The tank bottom is tiled in mosaic blue and greens, and all through the water, long green ropes sway and wave like algae. Tiny iridescent fake fish swim on clear wires through convincing coral displays, and little cave-like alcoves emanate colored light. A mermaid weaves in and out of this underwater grid, displaying her wares to the glass, wiggling her tail and torso suggestively, then grasps a rope of algae and swings herself up to catch a breath of air. The way she breathes is seamless. Her head disappears into a silvery-gray sky that can't be seen from the tank level. That tail weighs ten pounds alone, and you have to seriously work your stomach muscles. While holding your breath and trying to look alluring, Marley whispers, Oh, (laughs) they pay well for this? Well, enough for the girls. I'm in charge of the team, scheduling, hiring, firing, payroll, so I make a good wage with health benefits. Tips make up for the rest. 
One of the one of the mermaids winks at Marley, who chuckles. Fern, gotta watch out for that one. I think she'd like to parlay this gig into a topless affair if she has her way. It's something in the Vegas air, I think. Makes exhibitionists out of all of us. As if Marley needs any help in that department. What you can't see is the beach. Marley waves at a phantom landscape outside the tank. There's an area where mermaids go to sun themselves, and that's where patrons can stick cash into little nets. But if you don't work it down here, you aren't going to get much up there. So where did this place come from? Is it Wikiwachi Springs in Florida brought to Las Vegas? There's a, there is a bar in Vegas um, that has a tank like this with mm-hmm. women that do it. And I've only seen pictures of it. I've not ah. been there. So it was my imagining of that place. I was fascinated when I heard that. I'm, uh, yeah, I think it's a little girl thing. I'm sorry to say that you're, it, you're sort of given all these – the culture imposes these images on you, you know. So, Becca, you're with water all the time on those, those rafting trips. Do they do um, – you know, is there, are there any places where you can see underwater and swim, you know, and watch things through, you know, your, your snorkel and goggles? Do they do that at all in any of the parts? Or Oh, definitely. There are – I was having this conversation last night with my daughter who's a river guide now. Oh, how fun. Yeah, she's a fourth-generation guide in wow. my family. And she says she wants to go to Las Vegas for the first time. I said, okay, just think about it when you're there. That's all Colorado River water you're seeing. Yeah, and so, all the fountains and everything, mm-hmm. yes. So that's my river. Evaporating going into the air. to this artificial yeah, place. Yeah. And when you go into the canyon, this you can't see this from the north or south rim, but when you get down in there and you're at the level of the river, there are all these grottos, these beautiful places with clear water coming mm. out of springs and pools to swim in and, yes, real live mermaids every day i would say <laughs> off these river trips so yeah yeah How it's gorgeous i don't think i've ever seen that in any of the you know the the river guide things that we see on tv i know what you're saying i had not either i because i got very interested in guiding when i saw 10 who dared by walt disney which mm-hmm. was about the mm-hmm. powell journey down yes. the grand canyon the first one right or the, the worst first one that mapped it yes yeah the, really and the first end to end wasn't it that's the first one that's historically written about right, for sure. Right. And they I'm didn't not go talking about the guy in the barrel who fell in accidentally. Yeah, <laughs> you know about all that. That happens too. But they didn't show in that the beautiful side canyons and grottos. I didn't know about that until I saw a slideshow when I was in my first year of college. Mm-hmm. Martin Litton of Grand Canyon Dories came and was showing people what's down there when you really get sure, in. Sure, sure. And I talked to him at the time. I said, I'm a river guide. I'd like to go there sometime. And he said, well, we don't hire cooks. So I said, okay, I'm going there. You'll see me there, buddy. And you weren't, I, you and weren't I pegged, huh? Yeah, all right. <laughs> so that was very interesting. But mm-hmm. no, there's, there's mermaid maids for No sure. chauvinism on the river. No. Not no. anymore. Let's hope. Well, I have to say I was as much helped by men as, as you know, judged as incompetent by them, I'd say. You know, so. <laughs> oh, well. But I had a great career. So how many men did you save in your career who wouldn't well, be here I, if it weren't for you? I do remember one day on the Green River when I was the only woman on the crew. The guys got this idea that they would swim all the clients through this rapid. Mm-hmm. With, and, with 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 their life jackets. Yeah. And it was a perfect place to do that. But the people sort of got ahead of them. And there were like 15 people in the water that no one – then they started to wonder, when am I getting back in a boat? I picked everybody out of the water. Mm. The other guys were way far away. So there was times when that happened mm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, well, when we are in Las Vegas, and we're not going to give away too much, okay. but I have to reveal this because this is an important uh, novel twist point. Okay. Um, Marley is assaulted yes. and comes back to her apartment bruised and battered and blood caked. And her friend cleans her up as best she can and kind of puts her to bed, and then she falls asleep. And when she wakes up the next morning, what does she find? Well, I should say she does more than just clean her up. She okay. sort of – she puts her hands on her and as she's doing so, she has this sort of feeling like something's – like she should just sort of kind of The very strong her empathy feeling her, yeah. that you talked about. And she sort of like soothes her friend kind of – you might say she – it sounds weird, but like she sort of gives her a light massage or something. But it feels very and strange. And the next morning – To Grace. Grace gives this to Molly. It feels strange it to feels her. It feels strange to yes, Grace. Yes, okay. Or not so much strange as like something is happening. And then the next morning, Marley is um, – all of her bruising and injuries are gone. Mm-hmm. And so, overnight. Overnight. And they're the kinds where there would – it seems unlikely there would be no trace of them the next morning based on how she was assaulted. Because so. she was going to need uh, stitches the yeah. night before. Yeah. yeah. And probably be pretty bruised and swollen. Right. So um, she becomes convinced that Grace has healed her. Mm-hmm. Which apparently she has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where did this idea come from? This is this was this surprised me, shall we say? I thought we were going in a certain way and direction at that point in the book, and I said, "Oh, oh." And then what happens? You know, a few chapters later, where where Marley encourages her to use her mm-hmm. gift uh, even more so. But you know, this is uh, something <laughs> out of the blue. Where does it come from? Where does any of my ideas come from? I mean, I guess you could say. Um, I mean, one of the things that is very clear to me that may not be clear to the reader is that it's a metaphorical exploration of something. It is not – I am not writing a paranormal novel about a girl who can heal. I mean, it's not a a novel about magic, I guess is the best way I can say it. Now, that said, I was raised – my father's an acupuncturist. I was raised, you know, by astrologers and psychics and I don't necessarily – live my life, you know, in those parameters, but I would say that it was, it is a strong flavor in my upbringing, this sort of like whole new age world of healing. So I think that's just a seed. So we have an arm wrestle here where the reader (laughs) believes entirely different than what the author just said. It is a metaphysical voyage. It is. I didn't say not metaphysical. I believe it is. It's not magical in that. I'm not trying to write a fantasy novel. No, you didn't. And I and I think you could. There are people who would argue that there's real cases of hands-on healing all over the world Mm -hmm. and in a lot of different cultures. Primarily, it's not as. Oh, mostly I think. But um, it's a it's a subject that fascinates me. But I'm not using it. I'm not trying to convince anyone that it's um, like they should go out and hire a healer. Um, I have had some memorable experiences in my own life. However, um, this is where I feel like we go back to, we were talking about empathy earlier on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's um, a manifestation of something in grace on an extreme scale. And um, where it comes from, I, I don't know, or I couldn't tell you why that choice made itself because I don't feel like, again, I don't write my, very rarely do I sit down and go, I think now, oh, she's going to heal. That's a good one. You know, I don't, so don't think have an like that. Well, I have thing. an outline, yeah. but I mean, the idea was born with the, with the character. Uh, I knew that about her right away. You know, I just, I couldn't tell you. You could just feel I think that, that the, yeah. you know, fire, the, as soon as the fire um, 
the danger of the fire was born in Marley, it seemed like I knew that grace would be a counterbalance to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's all I could tell you. (laughs) So um, one day, and it's the daytime, Grace goes out walking along the street and she trips, stands mm-hmm. up, and she's in front of a an art mm-hmm. uh, shop, what do you call that? Gallery. A gallery. And in the window are these um, unique portraits of, of people. And uh, the man who comes to help her, you know, write herself, uh, says, oh, do you, are you interested in those photographs? It turns out he's the photographer. Surprise, mm-hmm. surprise. And uh, he's one of the few people she knows who's actually looking at her face and not recoiling because his face is also covered, but his is with tattoos. Mm -hmm. And he looks at her and she says, I'd love to photograph you. Um, You have the most fascinating, you know, lines and shapes on your face. And she doesn't know what to do. I mean, is this a come on? What is this guy like? Et cetera, et cetera. But as it turns out, uh, she ends up going to visit him. Now tell us about his lair and where this came from um is there a real place like this yeah there's a um kind of house that that you mostly find them out in the desert they're basically made from as much recycled and reclaimed materials as possible and they're Mm -hmm. called they call themselves earth ships Mm -hmm. i don't know whose original term that is but there's a there's a there's a handful of them in the united states and there are there actually i believe there is one in the in the nevada desert um and there's my, uh, just really a, cool. Just a small, small aside, my wife's uncle built one, but See? really high tech. You yeah. Know, with, oh, yeah. yeah. And they are becoming with tile more floors and more. And, yeah, they've yeah, got not radiant just heating. That's and, right. And um, bottles in the wall to absorb yep. the heat, et cetera, et cetera. And they do reclaimed water, you know, that – Sawed on the roof. All kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. And I've seen a couple – I saw a show, I think, on one, and I was, I was just mesmerized. <laughs> it was like they're – not only are they, you know, like completely sustainable and sort of off the grid, the ones mm-hmm. that have set up solar and stuff, but they're um, – they have this kind of like Hobbitshire quality to them that I find interesting. But I just, you know, I felt like a guy like that had to, had to live in a, a unique place. <laughs> right. But again, I didn't sit down and go, hmm, I think I'll think where he – it's just these things are like – they're like things that fascinate me that eventually have to find a home somewhere in my writing, you know. So he lives in one of those. So he lives in one of those. Yeah. A unique place for a unique individual. Yeah. Right. He's got some history with him, though. Yeah, he was a heroin addict. Right. Yeah. And lost uh, those he loved. Yes, he did. To that. Hmm. So uh, the empathy level goes up a notch when when she's around him. Um, Later on, they – I don't remember who arranged this, but basically um, there's an opportunity for Grace to perform a healing ritual, and she goes out – and meets a cluster of people, um, you know, a handful of people sitting around in the room, all who look like someone you're know, going to Lords or something, waiting for right. you know that the, the Marley the, arranges that exactly. And um, they begin to leave when she says, "I'm not going to do anything." Yeah. So if you can read page ninety-one for us, because one, a couple people stay by. Yeah, she tries, and it sort of seems to fail to repeat the healing that right. she did on Marley. She's not into it. And it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So, um, the last few people to leave include a woman who looks to be in her 30s, helping a frail elderly man limp across the grass with a cane. The sun causes a strange dappling of light just above her right breast. It takes me a minute to realize the sun is angled in the completely opposite direction. There is no light source. Wait, stop! She turns around. Faster than I thought possible, I stride across the lawn, 
barely even registering the complaint in my tight right leg. The woman's eyes widen at the sight of me up close. The wig and makeup shrouded the truth of me from the distance at which she sat. Panting with exertion, I managed to ask, How far along is it when I reach her side? Your cancer. Her hand goes to her mouth, eyes a horrified width. My, no, my dad's the one with... Without asking permission, I touch my index finger to the top of her right breast, and it's like pressing into hot tar. She recoils, but my finger stings after she's pulled back. I'm not sick, she says firmly. I came here today for him. He's the one with cancer. He's the one who needs help. Her father frowns at her. You've had those chest colds you can't shake. Oh, this is bullshit. She looks at him with the weary frown of the constant caretaker. I came here because you begged me to, because if medicine hasn't figured out a cure, surely some new-age charlatan will. Her father's smile turns down, an apology hidden in it. I am a lot of work. I don't blame you for being angry. I clutch my hands together. I barely believe myself. The old man holds out his hand. Thank you for trying, he purses his lips. Believe it or not, I feel better just from spending one day thinking that I might actually beat this thing. What's your name, I ask. Ray. Thank you, Ray. Uncharacteristically, I take his hand, and at the same time we both gasp, as a feeling like an electric charge passes between us. The serpent of energy I felt when I touched Marley slides up his arm until it changes direction and creeps towards his midsection. I follow the serpent with my left hand, which I place right below his belly button. He doesn't speak or move, but stares past me, off into space. I follow the energy deep into his bowels until I feel it, a dark, rotted place that makes me nauseated. His daughter has let go of him and is staring at us, gape-mouthed as if we are insane. Lay him down. My voice sounds husky and thick to me. Drew and Marley get to task. They lay him on the grass, and I see the dark place that my hands want to follow. I have to unbuckle your pants, I say. I have to touch you skin to skin. He gives a kind of half-nod, half-shrug, and I place my hands against the flesh of his belly, soft and wrinkled. Though I know my hands only rest on the surface of him, it feels as though I am dipping them into pudding. From the outside, what I am doing probably looks obscene, though I don't touch lower than the top of his pubic bone. After wading through the pudding, I arrive at a hard stone. I close my eyes and see myself lifting the black pulsing stone and tossing it into a bottomless well. Ray groans, and his daughter paces around us as though she wants to intervene, but can't bring herself to. Beneath that stone is another stone, and another one. I mentally lift and toss at least a dozen, Ray groaning beneath my hands each time, until finally he rolls away from me and throws up into the grass. "'What are you doing to him?' his daughter shouts. The connection broken, I now feel like a fish flung out of water onto dry land, breathless and dazed. My hands are heavy, and I could close my eyes and sleep right then and there if they let me. Ray shakes his head over and over, though he doesn't seem to be able to speak. Stay close to a toilet, I say, my throat parched, for a couple of days. You won't be able to keep anything solid down. Lots of fluid, soap, soup, water. I don't know where these instructions come from, but I am sure of them. His daughter helps him to his feet with a scowl at me. I interpret as suspicion and leads him, stumbling, off to their car. He looks wrung out, barely able to make his feet walk him, walk him to the car, and I want to offer a hand, but am too spent. Drew and Marley watch, seemingly paralyzed, as though too afraid of the man's daughter to help either. 
just before she buckles herself into the driver's seat, I see her look down and touch the spot above her right breast. Thank you. See, that part of the book reads, it could stand alone as a short story, the way it ends especially. Never thought about that. Because it has that open-ended, you want to find out, but you kind of know what's going to happen to these people. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So when you were working on a novel, and did you approach it in a different way? Did it take years to coalesce, or what happened? Well, I had actually written another novel um, was represented by an agent who was um, shopping that novel when I started working on this one. So I was sort of like doing it to distract myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I always, I knew I was writing a novel. That was not – but I did have a, a long working outline. So it was like I knew maybe five or six chapters ahead of myself. Um, and that was back in – I don't know. I want to say 2005 when I started working on it. Or Yeah, it was before my son was born. Um, and then I, my son was born in 2008, Mm -hmm. I have my dates. Yeah. So I worked on it and I was like sort of halfway there, just kept coming and going. Things happened. And when my son was born, I pretty much stopped writing for two years. And, um, when my other novel didn't sell, I was also very feeling very depressed and discouraged. And so, um, uh, basically a friend of mine who is a write, published writer told me she read some the first few pages I'd written and she said you really need to you need to work on this some more mm-hmm. and so I did finish it eventually and that draft um that's the one Becca well some version of that Becca has read and um and I just but I kept feeling really stuck and I was I was just not getting the feedback I wanted from from readers and so eventually I actually hired myself a an editor who works in publishing mm-hmm. currently and mm-hmm. Um, cause I felt like I felt like I had a, a habit or a strategy that was sort of stringing me up and she pretty much confirmed that and helped me through it, I think. Um, so I, yeah. So from 2005 to now, mm-hmm. maybe it was really like 2007. I don't have the dates right, but a, a, significant a long time, a few right, years. Right, so right. I feel like it's been a journey, a long journey and I'm really, yeah, glad to be here <laughs> <laughs> the other end of it with the you know soon to be i've got a i've got a uh, postcard she brought in with the cover and she put the cover online yeah. when she got it first is wow isn't this cool yeah I and it's it. uh, very beautiful and in bright oranges and yellows and the color there's a fair-faced woman standing i guess in front of flames would you say that i is? think she's in them <laughs> she's in the flames yes well okay <laughs> um becca i wanted to have an opportunity for you to share the collaborative profit process of doing right free attracting the creative life all right yeah so what would you like to share tell what tell, what is this about it says on the back it's equal parts writers workshop and spiritual journey so are you a healer too we discovered jordan and i through the process of finding our way to that book that writing can be used as a healing mm-hmm. tool and that writing can be used as a way to attract the sort of life we want to live as artists. Mm. We were very high at the time, and maybe we still are. Wait, on, not literally. <laughs> on law of attraction principles mm-hmm. where we bring to ourselves what we vibrate into the universe. And we were just discovering that if we sat by Sonoma Creek during our lunch breaks and worked on our writing dreams together, that they tended to come true. Mm. So as this became more and more powerful in our lives, we decided to collaborate on that book, Write Free, Attracting the Creative Life, published by Kalupi Press 
in our very own Glen Ellen in Sonoma Valley. Uh huh. And that came out in 2008. Was it eight? Yeah. Yeah. So is that what led you to deciding or contemplating or considering the novels? Was no, this we process? Had, we were no. already writing novels. Before. Already writing novels. That's true. We yeah. were writing novels and lots of short pieces as well. I think that that has been key in both of us bringing to fruition both of our first novels. Mm-hmm. And keep watching. We'll be having more fiction coming out. And it Once you crack the, yeah. the sound barrier, yeah, you're exactly. through it. I feel like there's a lot of – we were able to sort of put into place a lot of strategies and techniques for our own success. I, it sounds sort of pat, but – when we were writing that book, we can't. We, we these little things we were doing week after week by the river. You know, there was something about the setting being so beautiful and making us feel so good at the same time. Mm-hmm. We were like, "That's key," you know, mm-hmm. writing in a cubicle versus sitting outside, and you know, because the real difference. That's true. Because the law of attraction uses not just brain power but feeling power, vibrating with your whole soul yeah. and your your body, your your heart, what you want to manifest. So this is what you would share with other writers now is that they need to get out of their cubicle. That's a good, really good start. <laughs> what you do, what makes you feel good. That right. the the more you do what you are happy doing is you know how old is that statement? Follow your bliss, mm-hmm. blah blah blah. But it's true. I mean, the 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 truth. The funny thing about a lot of those sort of cliche sounding things is if you actually put them into practice, you find out there's a lot of truth in them. And so Hmm. that's sort of what happened to us is we were like, oh, this is an interesting idea. Let's play with it. Wow. How come you're getting published all of a sudden? And I'm getting published. And I sold my writing book. um, I got married. Reading water. Yeah. 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 Lots of great things were happening. Yeah, that's right. Right. Wow. It was a Well, it is so delightful to have you both visit with us this evening. I want to encourage when Forged in Grace comes out and hits the you know, wherever it's going to hit, bookstores and online, et cetera, et cetera, Jordan Rosenfeld's first novel. Uh, be sure to pick that up and also to be sure to look for Junction, Utah and Ride Down the Rivers, which we got a little taste of here from little Rebecca Lawton, also called Becca throughout this. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Gil. We want to thank you for sharing an hour with us on KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers, where tonight's guest were Word-by-Word's first host, Jordan Rosenfeld, sharing from her first novel, Forged in Grace, which will be released later this month, and with Rebecca Lawton and her just-released river-rafting novel, Junction, Utah. Our studio engineer is Mark Fuller, our program director is Robin Pressman, Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to tune in to our next word-by-word broadcast at 7 o'clock Wednesday evening, March 6th. Until then, we wish you a warm and cozy Valentine's Day.